Pretty Policeman, Multiple Paradox Net Files. These are some of The Little Darlings. It's great to be gay. Our favourite episode titles. Right on, sister. Please be gentle. From all three seasons of the logbooks. You might well be very angry. So we've printed them on a t-shirt and a poster. Crash pad needed. Kiss my rump. And our limited stock is for sale at thelogbooks.org. Interested and willing? With profits going to Switchboard. Thank you for being here. So take a look at thelogbooks.org slash shop. This episode contains homophobic language. This is a logbook entry from 7th of June, 1992. 17-year-old in pool. First sexual experience with man in toilet. A bit confused. Excited. Wants lots of sex, but scared. Will phone back. He wants info on novels, pin-up mags, videos, but ran out of 10p's. This is a logbook entry from February 24th, 1994. Johnny is 17 and lives in the Chesterfield area. He and his friends are interested in campaigning about the age of consent and would like us to pass on his phone number to any of the callers in his area of any age who would be interested in this action. He also has the phone numbers of Outrage and Stonewall for advice in how to get started. These sound like pretty interesting 17-year-olds, don't they? They do indeed. What were you doing at 17, Tash? Not much, really. Uh, I was driving around with no shoes on because I grew up in Devon and that was a cool <laughs> thing to do. And lasting after uh, the girl in the year above me. I, and of course, like I had no awareness around any kind of age of consent because women having sex with women just wasn't a part of any of these conversations. Yeah, I definitely knew that there was a difference in the age of consent. And I, I think I knew that I was not straight. And I knew what porn I was looking at and that kind of stuff, as you might remember from episode one of this season. How could I forget? And uh, But because I knew that the age of consent thing was different, that was another thing that signaled to me that there was something bad about gay sex. And I, I do remember feeling that. I remember thinking it was dangerous, it was more risky, and it was bad because... And that was why it had this like higher category, uh, this higher age. So, uh, yeah, that's what I remember from being 17. Oh, those days. You're listening to The Logbooks, stories from Britain's LGBTQ plus history and conversations about being queer today in partnership with Switchboard, the LGBT plus helpline. In this season, we're reading through the notes made by the volunteers who took calls between 1992 and 2003. I'm Tash Walker. And I'm Adam Smith. Episode two, The Little Darlings. In this episode, we are talking about the inequality between the different ages at which we are legally able to consent to sex. And we're jumping straight into 1992, where the age of consent for men having sex with men was 21, but for heterosexual sex, 16. We follow the journey as it moves down to 18 for sex between two people of the same sex in 1994. And then finally, it is equalised to 16 in 2001. Now, through all this time, this was a huge national campaign, really, really super galvanising for the LGBTQ plus community. Big controversial debates in Parliament and in the media, test cases against the UK government at the European legal level, the politics shifting from a Conservative government to a Labour government. And we've spoken to some of the voices caught up in all of this, including those who put their names on the line. But what it also meant was that throughout this period of time, it was something that a lot of people rang switchboard about. I remember taking calls from boys, boys and young men who were under the then age of consent, which I think was going from... 21 down to 18, wasn't it? So, I mean, there were a lot of a lot of young men who were active on the gay scene who could have been, or their partners, if older, could have been in trouble for that. My name's Judith Skinner. I was a volunteer at Switchboard from 1990 to 2001. I don't remember that people seemed particularly worried about it. 
But when you were, when one was talking to, you know, to very young people, like say under the age of 16, 17, yes, yeah, certainly there were issues that needed to be covered, that needed to be discussed, that, that didn't apply to older. For instance, bullying, school, parents and sexual health was really important. But at that time, you know, there's these conservative uh, MPs who we all knew were gay voting against lowering the age of consent for other gay men. And I had lots of friends who'd been criminalised as young gay men. Uh, I had a friend who'd been put in prison, you know, and treated as a nonce, you know, as somebody having sex with children. He was in his early 20s. His boyfriend was 19 or something. But, of course, it meant having sex with a, a minor and uh, you're, you're housed with the sex offenders. He had a terrible time in prison. Um, that's the other thing, of course. This time, early 90s, so many men dying. This is a logbook entry from May the 15th, 1997. Caller rang, 16-year-old man, very gay positive and confident about sexuality. Parents and some friends know and support him. A school friend is threatening to beat him up as he found out he was interested in him. Caller very afraid and getting low, although still maintain confidence about being gay. He's decided to tell other people about it, maybe even the school, as he is worried an attack could involve more than a black eye. He will probably call back as he asked if he could. Try to keep his confidence high. Oh, it's hard being 16, isn't it? You're grappling with your sexuality, maybe your gender identity. Your sexual agency isn't recognised by your straight peers. What a time. I didn't understand why the age of consent was different. It just didn't make any sense to me whatsoever. I remember walking back home one night with my first ever boyfriend, Alan. This is down in Exeter at this point. Again, you know, we were 15, 16, and we were walking hand in hand down the street, and a police car came past, and he dropped my hand. And I thought, hang on, what are you doing? And he was right to, just in case. And that's bonkers. That's just bizarre. To have two 15, 16-year-olds walking hand in hand down the street and to be terrified about a police car going past because they could end up in jail. That was Hugo Greenhouch, whose story you're going to hear a lot of in this episode. Along with a few others, Hugo did something incredible as an activist, starting when he was like 18, 19. Now, Tash... I think you were a bit of an activist when you were 18, 19, weren't you? <laughs> just a little bit. I was... Uh, were you a... just loud? <laughs> Up for debate. I got very involved in the LGBT society at university. But nothing like Hugo, who takes us back to a chance meeting in a student play. I met Will when I was at university. I was 19 and he was 24. Um, it's a lovely story. It's a fantastic story. We met at an audition for a play, passing by by Barton Shem, with whom I became friends afterwards. But it's lovely. What we did as part of the audition was act out the scene, but part of the scene was to kiss. So we thought, OK, let's go for... Let's make it real. Let's make it actually in terms of acting out the audition. So we kissed. It went well. <laughs> and then uh, he got my phone number. Uh, back in the day, before mobile phones, my landline number... Uh, and phoned me, and we met for a drink, and then we went out for four years. Fantastic four years. I remember when we first saw the adverts uh, for Stonewall looking for a, a person or a couple trying to bring a test case to the European Court of Human Rights over the gay male age consent. At that point, it was 21 uh, to the straight uh, male age of 16. I was 19, uh, Will was 24, so our relationship wasn't technically illegal, it was actually illegal. There's a logbook entry from January the 29th, 1994. In all caps, Age of Consent Rally. There's a rally for all and all's underlined at 2pm on Saturday the 5th of February in Trafalgar Square about the Age of Consent. Who's going to take our banner? Vote now likely to be on the 7th, 9th or 14th. The latter would be fabulous, wouldn't it? It got real when I saw my name in the Stonewall offices and it, very official documents, you know, Hugo Greenhouse, Will Parry and Ralph Wilde versus the United Kingdom. 
I mean, my God, scary, <laughs> absolutely scary. And at that point, you realise that it's happening. It's gonna, it's gonna go on, and it might actually achieve something. I mean, we, when we start the campaign, we didn't know what it could lead to. We knew that uh, it, it needs to happen, but we had no idea about the success, whether it would actually end up changing the law. For us, we were more involved in the UK side of things, so we were asked to take part in television debates, student union debates, uh, debates at town halls, so basically on the road, pretty much, for, for a year and a half, which is fantastic. I go out there and change hearts and minds. In terms of the technical side of things, uh, Peter Duffy, our QC at that point, handled that side of things, so we were not necessarily involved that much uh, when it came down to the technical process. We were down in Devon, my home county, uh, back in, I think, 93 or so. And I was on the uh, panel of a radio show called Bus Stop. And on the same panel, we had uh, somebody called Dr. Adrian Rogers, uh, who was a well-known, let's say, conservative figure uh, with a capital C and a small C as well in Exeter. And very terrified-looking police officer, we'll come on to that in a second, and a couple of other kind of pundits. And I was talking about my relationship with Will, my then boyfriend. And Dr. Adrian Rogers said, OK, uh, uh, to the police officer, Hugo has just admitted a crime. Arrest him. And this, in front of an audience, this big kind of gasp of, oh, my God. And the poor policeman's like staring at his shoes, thinking, oh, God, ground, open up now. I, I think uh, we'll, we'll, we'll look into this. And, of course, nothing happened apart from the, the producer, the radio producer, rubbing his hands with glee, thinking, great. Ratings, hooray. But after that, uh, and Dr. Rogers is quite a slippery figure. Uh, after leaving, he was like, oh, great, see you at the next one. It was like a game to him, like a joke. He didn't realise these are people's lives. This is my life at this point, my life and Will's life. He then brought a private prosecution against us. So in terms of my life, Will's life, it got very serious. We were interviewed under caution at Rochester Road Police Station in London about everything about our sex lives, about our relationship, about who we were. I was advised to give no comments uh, by uh, our lawyer at that point, and I, I did. I, I you know, was 19. I was terrified, absolutely terrified. I've never been in trouble with the police before or since, honest girl. But Will, I think this is the point where Will and his bravery really stands out. He said, no, I'm not going to do that. I will admit having a sexual relationship with Hugo, because otherwise, what's the point of the campaign? So incredibly brave. Again, I would have been arrested. Uh, I would maybe have been jailed. But he would have definitely been jailed on the back of that. So incredibly brave of Will at that point to admit having a sexual relationship with me. The battle to reduce the age of consent included individual stories like those of Hugo and Wills and Ralph Wilds, which were all supported by a wider community-led campaign. This was such a huge community issue. It really galvanised so many people in the LGBTQ plus community, a real moment of solidarity organised by Stonewall and supported by other organisations like Switchboard. And also famous people put their names and faces to it, like Ian McKellen and Peter Tatchell, who obviously would because he was an activist. And there's so much activism around the age of consent issue. And there's this logbook entry that we found from February 1994. Yeah, it's a wonderful logbook entry. It's A4. We've got age of consent in blue at the top, underlined caps locks. We change colour to green to like list the things that are needed. You can see that... You can still see the sticky tape on the left-hand side bulging out of this big logbook that's sort of pulsating underneath it. This is a cry to arms, and we've got a list of what's needed. One of the things that jumps out to me as well is point two. At the beginning of the rally, there's going to be this candlelit vigil outside Parliament from 7pm, which, of course, is to remember all of those people who have lost most recently over this last decade, because 93, 94, this was the height of deaths around HIV and AIDS. And they're clearly expecting a lot of people to turn up to this rally, because point number four is Stonewall needs stewards on the night, brackets, lots. And there's a phone number to <laughs> ring to say, presumably, I can be a steward on the night for, for Stonewall. Point five... Uh, Outrage, which was Peter Tatchell's organisation. Outrage urgently need leafleteers and two car owners as well. So you get the sense that like this is going to be like a big event and a big rally and it's going to be super important and lots of people are going to turn out for it. 
please tell all relevant callers. There's Switchboard again as that hub, that hub of the community where people go to, but how do you get your message out? You didn't have the internet, we didn't have social media, you had Switchboard. And this is a prime example of how Switchboard helped spread the word. And this rally is super important because it took place on the night of a free vote in the House of Commons. This free vote on the age of consent issue that Conservative MP Edwina Curry had pushed for to get all members to vote on this issue. Tash, tell us what a free vote is. Well, a free vote is when an MP can vote in line with whatever their beliefs are and they don't necessarily have to follow their party's policy. So what you get from it is hopefully a reflection on what Parliament really thinks on an individual level, as well as, of course, those MPs reflecting or or representing their constituents' views as well. What my honourable friend is seeking to do is to get this House to vote to legalise the buggery of adolescent males. Does she really think that that's what our constituents have sent us here to do? No. Our constituents send us here with our brains intact and we should be using them. Heterosexual activity is normal. And homosexual activity, putting your penis into another man's arsehole, is a perversion. Order, order, order. We can well do without talk like that. We spent about 18 months on the road uh, giving speeches at student unions, town halls, everything. And again, really was not just flag flying, but again, a case of changing hearts and minds. Right, so we're now in Tisbury. It's just on our way down to Exeter, my hometown, to give another couple of interviews to the the radio and the, uh, the TV, I think, as well. Because of the campaign, it kickstarted a free vote in the House of Commons. And on that fateful night in February uh, 1994, I was inside, I was in the, uh, the the press gallery, I'm a journalist, and I knew that uh, Will and everyone else was outside and I needed to be first out with the news. And it's, it's interesting to remember that that night was such an emotional night. Uh, Derek Jarman, film director Derek Jarman, had died, uh, I think, a day before, the night before, so the crowd was incredibly, incredibly moved and very much aware of the significance, not just of the vote, but also of Derek John, what he meant for the queer community. Most parents hope and expect their sons to follow a heterosexual lifestyle and also hope that they will, in due course, build a family life of their own. It is still true that in following a homosexual way of life, a young man sets himself apart from the majority. Is my right honourable friend confident that a young man as confused as the one he is portraying will be greatly assisted by having what he is experimenting with deemed to be criminal? If you compare the wonderful kind of atmosphere of people outside, and there were thousands of people out there holding little flags, you know, saying 16, um, Peter Tatcher was there, uh, Angela Mason, Ian McKellen, everyone's there to what was happening inside the House of Commons, where you step back almost 30, 40 years. Just the attitudes, the expressions, the arguments were unbelievably offensive and unbelievably from a bunch of dinosaurs, quite frankly. Uh, the debate was very unseemly in a number of ways and quite unpleasant. And people like Chris Smith are incredibly dignified. Yes, we are different. We have a different sexuality. But that does not make us in any way less valid or less worthy as citizens of this land. The debate around the age of consent felt so dominating at the time. It felt like such an important um, battle for our communities to to win. One of the old male MPs, or maybe even in the Lords, um, stood up and, and said, what we're discussing here is the buggery of young boys. And it and that's always stuck with me because it, it's kind of how misjudged is your perception of what we're doing here. And I think that was indicative of the time of how any discussion of gay identity was misconstrued with sexual activity and the assumption of, you know, paedophilia and the, you know, the, the, the way that people would link that. Um, so I remember that being, you know, a particularly 
prevalent um, discussion that was going on amongst us all at the time. Rather later than the other. But also because of the consequences of homosexual activity. How on earth are they going to find out what they are unless they experiment? And if they experiment, therefore he's going to send them to prison. And prison is hardly the place that gets people out of homosexuality. (laughs) And we listened, sitting there, as I did, in the press gallery to the arguments for, against, the neutrals, the people who bounced up. Edwina Curry, who then was a Conservative MP, who had kind of spearheaded the political campaign on behalf not just of Stonewall, but also because she believed in it. Uh, Whatever you might think of her political views, she was incredibly, incredibly instrumental in pushing this, this, this campaign forward. But the absolute redundancy of the arguments against all about sex, it was all about sex... Three hundred and seven. So the no's have it. Sixteen. It's, it's not sixteen. Sixteen is lost. How do you know? They've just had the vote. The vote just happened. Sixteen has not happened. They're going to now vote on eighteen. We've lost sixteen. How much have we lost by? Twenty-seven votes. the end of it um, we got 18 as a compromise between 21 and 16 and I stood up in the um, visitors gallery and yelled thanks for nothing and then legged it out before they could actually sort of come over and find out who I was and bar me. Another friend of mine who was a switchboard volunteer at the time was part of a group that blockaded the road out of uh, of, um, Parliament um, where MPs were coming out in their cars and I remember some poor hapless Um, Labour woman MP rolling down her window and saying to my friend um, but but I voted for 16 and he yelled back at her I don't care I didn't get my equal age of consent you're not getting your dinner (laughs) we all rioted outside Parliament it was a jolly good riot actually and then we marched Um, we had this militant march which strangely enough took an almost direct route to GAY which had offered all the demonstrators free entry that evening Um, but we stopped for a few moments at Downing Street and sat down outside and chanted Um, and we chanted quite a rude song about a couple of conservative politicians Portillo and Lily and then the next morning I got a call from a friend who was working with John Major because it was the Major government at that point He said, were you by any chance part of the crowd outside Downing Street last night, Lisa? I said, yes. He said, would you mind, I'm asking for a friend who didn't feel he could go to the window in case it it made him noticeable, but he couldn't quite make out the words of that song. Could you tell me? So I did tell him, and um, he sent me a little note afterwards that said there was a lot of chuckling when he relayed the naughty words of the song to his friend who couldn't come to the window, which obviously was John Major. (laughs) Adam, let's have a recap of what's happened. Well, this vote in the Houses of Commons was separate to the case that Hugo and others brought, which was to the European Court of Human Rights. And the vote was a political campaign led by Edwina Curry for equalisation to 16. That didn't happen. So on the same night, there was this compromise option of 18, which did pass. But of course, everyone in the campaigns had wanted equality, which this was not. So it was seen as a loss. So there's still so much further to go to get to equality of 16 as the age of consent, regardless of what sex you were having or who you were having sex with. This so-called compromise was not even clear to members of the public who didn't even know what the new age of consent was. 18, not equal. And that's why this caller rang Switchboard. This is a logbook entry from February 27th, 1995. One cold, lonely, quiet, switchboardish sort of early, pre-dawn, vacuously empty night shift, I had a call from a worried, concerned man whose brother, aged 20, has just been arrested for bonking a poor, innocent 17-year-old, as if. Looking for reassurance in the legal file that the age of consent really has gone down to 18, I find that there is a curious lack of new information about this most serious of subjects. 
contributions on a postcard, please. Our involvement in the campaign stopped that evening, uh, that horrible, fateful evening in February uh, 1994. But two younger, much braver people picked up the baton, Ewan Sutherland and Chris Morris, and saw, saw the campaign through to equality in 2001. Ewan is going to tell us his story of taking on the campaign. But first, he remembers being there in the House of Commons gallery on the night of the free vote, when the age of consent was brought down to 18 watching the debate unfold and then the votes come back in and being tallied um i was sat in the gallery watching and andy from stonewall sat next to me and i think i burst into tears when sort of understood what the result was and he sort of put his arm around to comfort me and this sort of um morning suited usher with gloves and a morning suit on came and said that you know we I couldn't be touched because that would be offensive to the members below. And I just thought, this is such a load of rubbish. There were a lot of us that were sort of distraught, but also furious with that result. And that took a long time to sort of get over, just that feeling of bitter disappointment and anger. I think that stayed with me for a long time. My name's Ewan Sutherland, I'm 44, and from 1993 until 2001, I took the British government to European Cause of Human Rights to equalise the age of consent for gay men. At the age of 16, I was dating, um, to put it, give it that title. Um, There were, in, you know, casual boyfriends that may not last more than a few dates, there were people that made it home to be introduced to mum and dad. There were boyfriends that made it to let's go out for dinner with the family or meet theirs. The, it, in a way, I think my parents viewed it, well, if I'm able to bring them home, then at least I'm under their roof and safe. Um, they know what's going on and who it's with. A bit like most teenagers, you know, um, If I come home safe and sound eventually, then, you know, it can't all be bad. Um, Yeah, I mean, there were... (laughs) Yeah, I I had a varied and active social life. (laughs) In 1993, I was 16, living in South East London with my parents and my brother. I think at that point I had left the sixth form of my secondary school and was going to take a little bit of time out before going and finding a sixth form college to do my A-levels uh, after realising that I wasn't a good fit for that school uh, and being asked to leave. Um, so I think I may have been at a bit of a loose end and working part-time in my local Sainsbury's in South East London and that's when I saw the advert in or an article in Gay Times uh, from Stonewall, which was asking people to speak to their local member of parliament and see what their thoughts and views would be if a vote on the age of consent for gay men were to come up in years future. My MP was Tessa Jow, um, who was uh, a Labour MP and uh, had a really strong background I think in social work and in social justice and women's campaigns uh, she thought that the principles of equality were incredibly important for her and her constituents so um, that's I I felt was a very confident leaving the surgery drop-in that she would be an ally uh, for any future votes. I don't know how quickly it took me to read the article and then decide to do it and then actually pull my finger out and do it. There may have been some weeks in between, which was pretty quick for a teenager. And it also took me a few weeks to actually bother to phone Stonewall up. They asked if I wanted to go onto the mailing list to get any future mail shots about what they were doing. 
Um, so name and address all fitted quite well, but I didn't fit into the categories that they had for the age groups. So they had 18 to whatever, and I was like, oh, no, I'm 16. And I think his ears must have pricked up at that point because he started asking me some more sort of general but becoming more increasingly personal questions about family and friends and support and blah, blah, blah. And it was the press officer who was actually asking would I be interested the following week on coming up and speaking to them about the age of consent campaign and being slightly more actively involved? It kind of was slightly overwhelming at times, slightly bewildering at times, um, exhilarating, but there were lots of ups and downs with it, which I don't think I had much preparation for. I think 94 to 96, I was doing my A-levels up at a further education adult ed college up at the Cut in Waterloo. Um, And I remember sort of sitting down to do an exam. And that morning, um, there'd been a series, or over the last series of days, there'd been letters with death threats in that had gone to the chambers of my barrister, uh, Stonewall offices, my home address, the college. And it was just, you know, there was references to things that had been in sort of um, either the Mail or the Express. There was a lot of religion that was brought into these things. My mum and dad had run away. I think they'd (laughs) had a long overdue holiday up in Scotland. So my godmother drove me down to the local police station, sort of hand these in and report them, and they weren't particularly interested. Um, I didn't feel like uh, the Metropolitan Police in the mid-90s were an uh, uh, awake, woke, inclusive organisation at the time. Um... So I don't think they even went through the um, pretense of being interested and concerned. I just think, oh, well, there's nothing much we can do. And here's a reference number and off off you trot. I can't imagine having to go to a police station on the day of your exam because there's been these letters, these hate, these, this hate mail against you and uh, articles in the newspaper, in the daily national newspaper about you and then having to go to the police station to complain about that and the police just saying, okay, jog on, basically. It's hard enough having people shout at you in the street when you're 16, which happened to me as a, really? as a young queer person. Yeah, of course, loads of times. Mm. Um, but I, I can't imagine that coming into your home, mm. into your home and seeing that in the press. Mm. I definitely got, like, angry but quite quietly when I was 16 about like issues of justice and about people that were persecuted. Like I I had opinions about that kind of stuff. And I knew that I was, that I had different opinions to other people around me who like hated those people or whatever, but I just kept them to myself. And I just tried to do my studies and just focus on that. And I just think, I don't know, I would, I obviously didn't do what you and did. And I don't think I would have been able to do something that was like, actually had a bigger impact than just myself. I was just so like, quite like focused and, and lasered on, on my own stuff. If only we'd met earlier, Adam, I would have been that person by your side, fighting the corner. <laughs> I literally couldn't stop arguing with everyone wow. constantly in lessons, with peers, with family members, whatever. I could do to push the boundary I pushed it sometimes too far (laughs) (laughs) wow wow no matter your age it would be hard to come up against the kinds of people that we're going to hear about now I remember meeting two sisters for I think it was a BBC talk or debate program and they were Victoria Gillick and Lynette Burrows I think they've come from a Norfolk Christian uh, values background. I think they've got about a dozen children between them. Victoria Gillick was the woman that took the local health authority to court back in the 80s for offering her teenage daughter contraception advice without her input. And that's why I think at one point people might be familiar with the Gillick competency. But they were wheeled out for traditional Christian values opinions on lots of different things and I remember meeting one or both of them backstage at this debate that we were about to have or perhaps we'd done the debate and then we were sort of winding down backstage afterwards 
and what they were incredibly patronizing and felt entitled to come up to me and say whatever your parents say to you they must be incredibly disappointed I'd be brought up to be quite a polite person and I was just absolutely taken aback that these sort of grown mature people would feel that that was an appropriate thing to say and I was absolutely mortified at that point probably didn't say very much I don't think I would have felt very comfortable challenging them because I've been brought up to be quite polite to my elders I think I had a long sort of conversation with my mum and dad when I got home about what they'd said and I was completely reassured that they were incredibly wrong Our court case, my court case, and that uh, it had been joined at that part by Chris Morris. I remember there were some meetings with the Labour Party, and again, it was about that. What, what could they do without alienating certain people? It was a very tactical decision, trundled on. But we've had to go back to votes in Parliament, and then them being overturned by the House of Lords and get sent back. There were lots of technical legislative bits, which perhaps um, I'm not doing justice to. But Strong Case at Europe put the pressure on Westminster to pull their finger out and do it. And the Labour government forced its way through the House of Lords by using the Parliament Act. And then we've got eventually, I don't know what, eight, nine years after we started an equal age of consent. Finally, the European Court of Human Rights case and the wider campaign had put pressure on the government, which was a pretty newish government anyway, with a stronger focus on human rights that ended in them introducing a bill for equality and winning the vote. Yes, and it's, <laughs> in 2001, I was 16, and I remember not like this being in the news or anything, but I remember at my school, I was doing GCSE media studies with a couple of friends, Sarah and Phil, and we had to put together a newspaper, just like a one-off newspaper. And I remember Sarah and Phil did a cover story on the newspaper about this legal change. And it would have obviously affected me if I had been open and if I'd, you know, been been fully out and knowledgeable of, of, of who I was then. Uh, Phil was, and so it also affected him. And it was, I just think, looking back now, that's great that they actually chose to put that on the front of this student newspaper that we had to make. Yeah, definitely. And there was me just writing about hockey games. <laughs> Stereotype. So it was like a really, really big deal. And I can only imagine how Ewan and Hugo and all these other campaigners must have felt. I think by 2001, when um, we finally got equality, I was incredibly relieved because it had been dragging on for quite a long time. And I was incredibly relieved that the principles of equality were now enshrined in British law. But bloody relieved. It had just gone on so long. Ewan and all these campaigners had this huge swell of relief when that happened in 2001, you know, there was this huge leap forward for equality when it came to sex around the age of consent, meaning that they could have sex at 16 now or 17. And yeah, if you were at school, you would not have been learning about safer sex or about the sex that you wanted to have, because that would have been banned under Section 28, which banned the promotion of homosexuality by local authorities, schools and libraries. We covered Section 28 in Season 2, Episode 7. So if you want to learn more about that, take a pause, go back, <laughs> have a listen. And it wasn't until two more years, 2003, that Section 28 was repealed. And we have seen logbook entries, which we'll talk about in a different episode, of people contacting Switchboard right up until the moment that that law was repealed who are having the direct impact of Section 28 on their lives. Yeah, so in the early noughties, things were getting better because of the equality of things like the age of consent. And there was slightly more acceptance and growing in society, as you can hear in this next logbook entry. This is a logbook entry from May 30th, 2002. A teacher from an all-girls school in North East England has managed to convince her management team to ignore Section 28, 
and install anti-homophobia structures and policies in her school. She was looking for speakers to come and talk to the staff. I gave her numbers of local groups, organisations, etc. and the helpline. But can anyone else suggest other organisations? It would be great if we can help support this excellent bit of progress. The threat of a criminal court case hanging over people was never protective. It was always to shame and to threaten. It wasn't to support and protect. So that burden, I hope, has been removed and people can be the, be themselves safer, happier. Things changed a lot and I hope for the better. And I think hopefully young gay people in the early 2000s have had a better time on the whole. Looking back at the campaign, and we're, we're going back now by, oh good lord, about 20 plus years. Hello, we were so young. Uh, young, uh, but committed. It's interesting, I, I feel many things. Um, but the main thing is pride. I'm so glad I did it. I, I can see my 19-year-old shouty self. I, I look back at, at him and say, well done. Well, you know, good on you, basically. It's important to realise that we were part of a community and we still are part of a community I look at the situation now uh, particularly for trans rights in this country uh, which are forgive me going absolutely backwards and going nowhere and it really is important for young people 19 I was with your 18 17 whatever you might be to stand up and to shout and to scream it really is important not just to stand up on your own but to be an ally to think about your trans siblings to think about how others how we were treated as gay men back in the 80s and 90s, and to think how people now, particularly trans people, are being treated in today's society. This is a logbook entry from October the 25th, 1995. I have just had a call from a 15-year-old girl who wanted to know where she could meet people. The problem being that there is practically nothing for males and females under 16. Is there any way of getting more information on activities and places to go for young people? Most of the youth groups listed are not generally attended by many teenagers, therefore making them seem a little unwelcoming for young people. How can we help the little darlings? Any advice? All these brave people doing activism around sex. Remember those bigots we heard about earlier, the legal ramifications, Hugo being questioned by police. God, for these people, it's hard because it's very public and very exposing. Yeah, and I think sex activism is uniquely hard because it's harder to talk about in the media. Lots of that inherited and imposed shame and stigma or squeamishness, watershed moments, especially LGBTQI plus sex. And that's still the case today. So we chatted to Phil Samba, who's doing this work today, specifically around sexual health. And he makes it sound like a breeze. But it's hard. (laughs) That's just his manner. Yeah, Phil is just chill. And you can follow him for Love Island tweets at IdiosyncraticXL. But for now, let's listen to Phil talk about his work today. Um, I'm Phil Samba. I'm 31 years old. I'm a health promoter. I'm a researcher. I'm a writer and a social activist. I got involved in sexual health activism um, because as I was leaving uh, UK Black Pride in 2017, um, I bumped into Mark Thompson and um, Will Nutland, who are the founders of The Love Tank and... um, uh, prepster as well and um, basically uh, they were giving out condom packs um, and on the condom packs it was like there's a drug that can stop you from getting HIV don't you think we should know about it or we should have it and I had like I should need to get I probably need to explain what prep is if um, if you don't know what prep is prep is is a drug you take before and after sex that stops you from getting HIV and um, basically like I had an awareness of it but I knew that we didn't have access to it or that it wasn't available on the NHS. And I just realized that it wasn't even so much a realization. It was just that I just kind of 
understood that a lot of people didn't know what prep was or how to buy it online at the time it's available on nhs now but they didn't know how to buy it they didn't know it existed they, didn't, they thought it was maybe too good to be true and there was a lot of like stigma around it or there was a lot of mis misinformation around it and i just thought that like i i just felt like i was in a position to tell people about it it just kind of snowballed and then it became like i guess a career for me I see a lot of similarities within, um, I guess, uh, activism when it comes to sex and in particular queer sex. In, I guess there was like a new wave of activism because um, originally with um, HIV activism of the 80s and the 90s, it was very urgent and it was very, um, it was needed, it was necessary, it was like um, extremely requisite, but it kind of died down in the 2000s, particularly when um, antiretrovirals uh, medication, which people living with HIV was taking, that, that are taking, that stops them from getting HIV and passing it on. Once uh, a lot of people were getting onto that, it's like the conversations around HIV just died down. But I think the good thing is that things like um, the message behind that only started in 2014. And then uh, PrEP, was becoming more mainstream around uh 2015 16 so um what had happened is there was this like new wave of um activism that kind of was very similar to that same activism of the 80s and 90s in the early days of my activism i used to get a lot of backlash because of attitudes towards prep at the time basically i used to get a lot of backlash about um condom use even though i never actually ever exclusively or I said that you should use PrEP instead of condoms. Like my thing has always been that you have the option to use condoms if you want or if you don't want to. But the thing with PrEP is that it actually has really good benefits for your mental health and it removes that stress and anxiety about getting HIV when it comes to um, having sex. So I used to get a lot of backlash about um, kind of pushing an agenda of, um, using, of having condomless sex. I used to get a lot about, um, it was mostly that actually. I didn't really get, anything i didn't get a lot of backlash from straight people i guess mostly because initially my activism started a lot prim primarily online at the time so through my social media the, the core group of people that follow me are queer men gay men bi men uh, trans men and women so I, I didn't get backlash in that aspect or from my own community and also um there are really high rates of HIV amongst uh, queer men of color. Black men have the highest rates of HIV worldwide. So, um, so it would look really bad if people were trying to have a go at me for trying to make people who look like me have better um, attitudes towards sexual health and attitudes towards sex and like um, have more of an awareness around um, their well-being in connection to sex and consent and those things. We don't talk about like what it means to feel comfortable when you're having sex or what does it mean to um, enjoy sex and like just have sex for the sake of having sex. I feel like if we don't teach young young people about consent and what they're able to do and what they're, what they're able to do, what they should feel comfortable asking, what they feel they should feel comfortable doing, then how are they ever going to learn that? And sadly, especially when it comes to a lot of queer people, we learn those things through experiences that we have through sex, through friends, and sometimes in relationships. That's where we learn about consent because it's never been taught to us. What I would love to see in the future, particularly when it comes to sexual health, I'd love to see like more specifically targeted like campaigns i'd love to see like more work more funding actually because there's been a lot of public health funding in the last i think six years or so there's been a lot of cuts to sexual health and public health kind of um funding and um services that have been cut i think that um a lot of things need to change uh within not so much the nhs but within how we kind of do healthcare overall. I think we have this thing of one size fits all. 
and that we try to bracket everyone under this this group and it doesn't always work. I think you can see that in with even with little things like the um the term BAME, B-A-M-E, Black, Asian and Minority Ethnic, like I, I, I hate that phrase. I don't feel like I fit in with that. I'm not BAME, I'm black, you know? So I think we need to be more specific when it comes to targeting people with groups. So things like that. So instead of doing this whole one-size-fits-all or catch-all kind of techniques, we need really specific, um, specifically targeted interventions for different groups of people. Also, what's missing is like there's there's a link between mental health and sexual health because if you sometimes if you have poor mental health that could lead to you having poor sex like not poor sex but like more having I guess less inhibitions and kind of putting yourself at risk more often. So I'd love to see more crossover between mental health and sexual health and not having one thing in one place and another thing in another place. Uh, my dream would be to open a clinic in which we have mental health and sexual health services within one place. And rather it then it be completely separate because some they are so interlinked a lot of the time. It's also really easy to get burned out doing this work because generally within activism, it's a lot of people that are empaths and people pleasers at the same time, which in itself is exhausting. <laughs> so to be doing like a job within that aspect, it can be um, quite draining because um, you're taking on a lot of people's um, things. And also it's really difficult to tell yourself to stop or to tell yourself that um, you need a break. Well said, Phil. The biggest form of activism is always looking after yourself. So Phil, you take a break, honey, and we'll take a break. Then Adam and I will be back next episode with Difficult Calls. Calls to Switchboard are confidential, so to bring the logbooks to life, we've changed callers' details. The Logbooks is produced by Shivani Dave, Tash Walker and Adam Smith in partnership with Switchboard, the LGBT plus helpline and supported by the National Lottery Heritage Fund. If you think other people would like the Logbooks, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. These ratings and reviews really help others to discover the show. You can send us your feedback and stories to hello at thelogbooks.org or join the conversation on social media with the hashtag the logbooks. Our music is by Tom Foskett Barnes and our artwork is by Natalie Dotto. Thanks to Steph Dickers and the team at the Bishopsgate Institute, the folks at ACAST, Content is Queen, David Pye, the staff and volunteers at Switchboard and everyone who shared their stories with us. Switchboard continues to take phone calls from 10am to 10pm every day. If you're affected by any of the issues in this podcast or need to discuss anything to do with gender identity or sexuality, you can call Switchboard on 0300 330 0630, email chris at switchboard.lgbt or instant message via switchboard.lgbt where you can also donate money or time to help.